we'll be looking at page number eight in the participant guide in just a bit. But before we do, let me just remind you of some stuff that is coming up in the life of our church. Guys, one week from today is our annual sportsman's dinner. So one week from this evening, five to seven, at the Trenton Community Center. It's actually called the Westfield Activity Center. Same place where we had our uh, 10-year anniversary dinner back in October. So if you were at that, you know where this place is. But it's right behind the Trenton Library on uh, West Road. Westfield Activity Center, 5 to 7 for the Sportsman's Dinner. Now, there are tickets for that. The tickets are $10. We're going to have a full meal, as we, as we always have. We'll have some games. We'll have prizes to, uh, to give away. I'll present a, a brief gospel presentation as well. So it is an outreach opportunity, and we encourage you to use it that way. So invite uh, a guy or two or ten to come to this thing. I told the guys in the brief meeting that we had about that last week, if you bring, if you bring seven guys, we'll, we'll pay for them to come if you get that many guys. Uh, but, and and I, if you can bring one guy or two guys and you can shell out their $10, they'll come. So pay for their ticket, give them the ticket, it's already paid for, and they'll show up. So if you can do that, that'd be great, and we'd be interested in even helping you do that. We always have a good number of guests and guys who uh, have not come to Christ at that. So it is an ideal outreach opportunity. Let's use it that way. One week from tonight, 5 to 7, Sportsman's Dinner at the Westfield Activity Center in, in Trenton. And then if you look in the uh, bulletin, you'll see just some things that are coming up. Matt mentioned those in the first hour if you were here, but just keep track of things that are, that are coming up that apply to you. One of them is February 18th, or might pl- apply to you, February 18th, Saturday, February 18th, is the next Newcomer's Brunch, brunch at our house in a few weeks for those of you that are new to, new to our church. So if you're a newcomer, newcomer is defined as you've never been to brunch at our house. So you may have been here a while, but for whatever reason, the schedule didn't work out for prior brunches. We would love to have you come over, get to know you a little bit better in that setting. No program, no material, uh, just brunch and fellowship. And then if you do have any questions about us, uh, I'll do my best to answer them, but you don't have to have those either. Just a, just a good time together. 10 a.m., our house, Saturday, uh, February 18. We just need to know how many folks are planning to come. So if you'll let uh, the folks at the uh, Resource Center know that you want to come, they have a card for you that gives the date and the time and a map to our house at the Resource Center, and they'll put your name on the list so we know how much brunch to, to make for that. And uh, I should have mentioned that the Sunday before that, February 12, is our next family meeting, our next congregational meeting. So those of you that are members of our, our church, and if you're not a member of our church but you're looking for a church and you want to see how we handle business, you're welcome to come to that, uh, to that meeting and observe. But we're having a family meeting uh, three weeks from today, February 12, in the afternoon, 2.30 at 1st of Gibraltar. And the primary item on the agenda is, will be to discuss what we have learned in our investigation about the building that we're hoping to purchase uh, for a ministry center. So we have contracted to buy an elementary school. We're hoping to consummate that deal here in the next uh, many weeks. But there are a lot of questions that we want to have answered about that. Uh, to our satisfaction before we do that. So we want to tell you what we found out. If we found out everything we need to know, well, then we can take a congregational vote that day. But uh, that may not be the case. We may not know everything we want to know, uh, but we already know a good bit, and we'll pass on everything we know at that time. We also that day are looking to possibly schedule tours of the building 
as well. So the meeting and then uh, some tours as well. So mark that on your calendars, February the, uh, the 12th. Today we start a series, the title of which is on the screen, uh, The Gospel-Centered Life. And most of you have the little participant guide that we'll be using to go through together. There's a bunch of introductory pages there, but we are going to begin in earnest on, on page, page 8. And as we do, let me offer some thoughts about why this kind of series is necessary. I am convinced that we as Christians and us as the church need to be involved in the change business. That the Christian life is to be a continual process of change. It is to be a continual process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. That is, week by week, month by month, and year by year, I, we, need to be making progress in looking more like Jesus. Now, looking more like Jesus, meaning we think like Jesus, we talk like Jesus, we act like Jesus. And we make progress in doing that by removing things that are obstacles to that or contrary to the way Jesus would think and talk and act, and then conforming our thoughts and our words and our behavior to what we find in Scripture described of Christ. So that requires then a continual process of change. The Bible, Christianity, is about change. So if people forgive the grammar ain't changing, then we ain't doing Christianity. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 tells you that Christianity is about change. You know, Paul, who writes there, says in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3, he tells Timothy, to whom he's writing, Timothy, you have known the Holy Scriptures from a child, which are able to make you wise unto salvation. Some of you remember that. Able to make you wise unto salvation. So, Timothy, there's a change process that begins, starts, with you coming to salvation. Rescue, deliverance in Jesus Christ through the word of the scriptures that we're going to see is, is the gospel. So through the scriptures, they make you wise unto salvation, that you need it and how it's attained. And you've known that since a child, Timothy. But not only is there this initial change, there's ongoing change as well. All scripture is God-breathed, says verse 16 and is useful for four things, for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So that for this purpose, those four things are for one purpose, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there's a change that takes place when you come to Christ in salvation. The scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation, and that change process continues as you are taught in the scriptures... And you see in that teaching that there's a gap, a continuing gap. Even though that I've come to Christ, I, I'm taught by the Scriptures about God and about myself, and there is still this huge gap between Jesus and me. And I want that gap to be continually narrowed as I'm conformed to the image of Christ. So the Scriptures teach me, and the Scriptures rebuke me. They convict me. That's the second of those four things. 
there's this gap, and I am convicted of the fact that there is, there is this gap, and I see specific ways in which that gap exists in my life. So that rebuking, that convicting work of the Word of God makes me desirous to correct change, which is the third of the four things, correction. So teaching and then, and then rebuking or conviction, same word in the New Testament. Correction, correct means to cause to stand what has previously fallen. So now I'm, I'm convicted, but God doesn't leave me there, thankfully. If God puts a period after that, <laughs> you know, the scriptures are profitable to blast you <laughs> and to leave you in pieces, period. But no, God picks you up. Correction tells you what needs to be done, what needs to be put on and put off in the language of Scripture, what needs to be replaced in order for that which has fallen now to stand. And then it instructs us on disciplined training in righteousness so that these changes become the habits of our life, part of the fabric of our lives. So am, am I right that the Christian life's about change? Christianity is about change. And yet, I mean, that's just, that is just fairly plain. And yet, there are plenty of professing Christians who have 30 years of, uh, they, they've, been, they've been saved for 30 years, but they have one year of growth. You've worked with people like that. You know, they've got one year of experience over a 30-year career. They haven't continued to grow in their career. People who haven't continued to grow in their walk with Christ. Now, why is that? Why is it that so many people who profess Christ have not grown in Christ, even though Christianity is truly about change? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. One, many people just deny the possibility of change. They just are so pessimistic, they just don't think you know, change is possible. I mean, whatever it is and however I've been living and whatever's been going on has been going on so long, it just, it hasn't changed, it ain't going to change. That's the pessimistic view. And it has some pretty good support. If you look around you and the people you deal with, the truth is most people don't change, do they? So we have phrases like, you can't teach old dogs. The only thing that I'm really thankful for is I'm not dealing with dogs and tricks. I'm dealing with people made in the image of God on whom God's Spirit is working to restore them to the image of Jesus. But we adopt this pessimistic attitude. You know, people don't change. You can't teach an old dog, an old dog new tricks. But God is very clear that we are in the change business. So why don't more people change then? Because some deny the possibility of change at all. Second, many people don't think it's necessary. Now, what do I mean by that? I have met many a professing Christian who thinks it is okay. If I prayed a prayer to Jesus when I was eight or sometime in the past and nothing or not much has changed, and we think that's okay, so it's not necessary that I change. Now, how could we think that's okay? A lot of ways, but let me give you a few. One is we think that God's purpose for placing us here is to find out if we're going to go to heaven. And once that question's been answered, everything else is gravy. I'm just saying, this is what people think. 
the one thing that matters in this life is whether or not when you die, whenever that is, are you going to go and enter the pearly gates? And if you think that, if you've already settled that when you were 8 or 10 or 20, then everything else is gravy. The Bible doesn't teach that, but a lot of people think that. And we've promoted that in our churches. But I'm here to tell you that God is interested in, in not only more, something more important than whether or not you go to heaven. Now, just pause for a second and ask yourself, did you ever think that there was anything more important than whether or not somebody goes to heaven? But there is. And the Bible teaches it is the glory of God. As a matter of fact, it's the glory of God. The glory of God is the reason people go to heaven. And it also explains why the minute you came to Jesus when you were 8, 10, 20, whenever that was, he didn't just say, well, come on home. The question's been answered. Think about it for a second. Once that question has been answered in the affirmative, yes, when I die, I'm going to heaven because I've come to God through Jesus Christ, then you've got to answer another question. Then why am I still here? And the answer to that is, You were saved in order to bring glory to God. So he's left you here for you to now become more like him. And that will culminate in, yes, you going through the pearly gates and you'll be completely like him. So God's goal is his glory. And if you don't get that, and many professing Christians because they've gotten it from a lot of churches, don't get that. That God's goal is His glory. God's goal is not heaven. God's in heaven. He's good. God's goal is not heaven. God's goal is His glory. And He made you and He made me to reflect Him back to Him. And salvation then is a restoration, a reclamation project for broken image bearers to have the mirror repaired so they reflect him, not in a distorted fashion, but in a clear fashion. And that's why you're here, to change to the image of Jesus. And if you don't believe that, it results in a truncated process of the Christian life. It's truncated. I get saved, the gig is up. Everything else is gravy. There's still some good stuff. You know, I like those Bible stories. I like those Christian people. I go to that church over there. We have some cool fellowships. It's gravy, but it's all just not necessary. The necessary stuff's been taken care of, we think. A truncated process. But God's goal is not heaven. God's goal is not ultimately salvation. God's goal is his glory now. And God's means is the gospel. God's goal is his glory. And the means by which that is achieved is the gospel. Well, now that starts to change things because the gospel is no longer just this thing that I heard when I was 8, 10, 20, whenever it was, responded to, and now I'm good with that, and we can move on. But rather, the gospel is and continues to be the means by which God achieves his purpose in me. So if you believe that salvation is the end game, then it will result in a, in a truncated purpose, a truncated process. 
But if you define the gospel as just something that I get at the beginning and then, you guys have heard me say about God's waiting room, Bill Knapps. You know, life is then just one big Bill Knapps. God's waiting room. And you're just waiting for God to call you home and you're biding your time and everything else is gravy. That results in a truncated, now hear this, definition of the gospel. And I would be willing to wager, if I were a betting man, that some of us here have a truncated definition of the gospel. That is an incomplete definition of the gospel. So let's, let me try to prove that as you think about it. If, we were to, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? What many of us would rightly do is say, let's try to find a passage in the Bible that defines the gospel and gives the elements involved in the gospel. And so we would, many of us, point to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to, I want you to look at that. If you don't, it's okay. You can just listen. I know you're juggling a book and now the Bible and a cup of coffee and a bagel. Two cups of coffee and five bagels. I see so I'm not going to name any names. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15. So the question is, well, what is the gospel? And I'm making the case that many people live with a truncated definition of the gospel. An incomplete definition of the gospel. If asked what the gospel is, they would say, well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells you what the gospel is. And here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Verse 1. Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. So this is a good passage to go to. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Oh, look at that. Seems like an ongoing thing, doesn't it? Otherwise, you believed in vain. You believed in vain if you don't hold on. That's what he's saying. If this doesn't have effects into the future, you believed in vain. But it goes on. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here it is. In the IV, colon, here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then it will say, and he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So, you will see then, the content of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised. And so what happens is, if you ask someone now for a definition of the gospel... They will go to 1 Corinthians 15. They'll say, this is about the gospel. The gospel is of utmost importance. They'll skip that bit in verse 2 about it ongoing, believing in vain. But, but then go to, it consists of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, of course, that's all true. But let's break this down for a second. Go back to verse 3. Christ, let's stop there for a second. See, we just read that over. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. No, just stop. Christ. Well, that raises some questions in itself. Who's that? So you're going to get a definition of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Well, then we need to know what's being said in those phrases. Do we not? So when it says Christ died for our sins, let's start with Christ. Who is Christ? So think about you're just somebody who's hearing this for the first time. And you say, hey, I've got good news for you. 
Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures. What kinds of questions is that person going to say in order for this to be truly gospel good news to them? Well, one of them would be, hey, you mentioned somebody named Christ. Who might that be? Oh. Well, um, and then you start doing the file back to Sunday school. Christ is, uh, that's his title. I remember Ken saying that. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. And so when it says Christ died, it's not his name. Jesus is his name, and Jesus is the Christ. And so Christ died. Who? who? The title for the anointed one. The anointed one has died for your sins. Okay, well, why is he anointed? Why anoint him? What's, what was special about him? That he should be the chosen one to die for our sins. Well, that's going to take us back a little bit further now, isn't it? What makes him so, so special? That he could die for my sins. Oh, well, that's because he never sinned. Really? How's that? Well, he's God. Whoa! This thing is really starting to expand. God died for, for our sins. And the reason that this one who has the title, the anointed one, is qualified to do this is because he's none other than sinless God, holy God, having died for us. Wow. This is getting more interesting. This gospel thing is not just, okay, do you believe that? Shake my hand if you believe that. Cool, you're going to heaven. You think I'm making that up. People do that. In fact, they won't even have you pray. I'll pray, and if you believe it, squeeze my hand. I am not making that up. I wish I was. Christ died for your sins. Do you believe that? Yep. That guy walks away, and you say, who's Christ? I have no earthly idea. Did you know Christ is your God? No. Did you know he made you, therefore? No. Did you know then he makes the rules and he's your master and you've got to obey him? No, I had no idea. That's part of the deal. Count me out. One of the reasons you have so many professing Christians who never change is because they, now I'm just saying, they aren't Christians. They've never been born again. They've never been changed. They've never submitted themselves to this one who is the anointed one, who is Christ, who is qualified to die for us because he is holy God. And he made us, and he owns us, and he tells us what to do. He's our Lord, right? So, Christ died. Now that we know something about who Christ is, Christ died. Well, why die? What does he got to die for? I mean, if he's God, why doesn't he just then exercise his executive power as God? The president can, ex- can execute a pardon. Why can't God just pardon me then? Christ died. Well, you know, there's a little bit that goes with that, isn't there? Where'd this whole death thing come from? That goes back to the beginning of this book, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 15 is summarizing a whole bunch of stuff, isn't it? 
Death goes way back. In the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. The reason he died is because you're dead. And the reason you're dead is because of sin. Because the wages of sin is death. And our first parents represented us in the garden, and they disobeyed God's command, and thus died on the day and the very moment that they ate of the forbidden fruit. They didn't die physically. They didn't die physically till later. They died spiritually. Death means separation. And so... And so they died spiritually because now they're separated from the God who made them. And because they're separated from the God who made them, they will die physically as well. And they did. And we all do. Christ died. And the wages of sin is death. And now, in order for the penalty for your sin to be paid, somebody's going to have to die in your place. And God has come to do that. Christ died. And in the case of Christ, you know, this whole definition of death as separation still obtains. You remember when Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus was separated. I mean, he, he not only died physically, but he died a separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died physically when his spirit was separated from his body. That's what physical death is. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died physically. Christ died for. All right. Really, there's something to the word for? Well, yeah, there is. Because the word for indicates ability on his part. You see, Christ died, fill in, because he had the ability to pay for your sins. Now put it another way. Christ died for our sins because you didn't have the ability to do it. See, he had to die for you because you couldn't pay for it yourself. Christ died for me. I need this. I need this gift from him. He has to supply it. I can't do it myself. And Christ died for what? He has the ability and I don't. Our sins. Plural. Notice, God, is not, God does not care about how many. It's just sins. You know how many are enough to separate you from God? One. Do you know where you got that first one? from Adam and Eve. When you came into this world, we came into this world, according to the Bible, born, minute one, dead, in trespasses and sins. Dead. Separated from God because of trespasses and sins. So I come into this world naturally separated from God, dead in my sins. I commit sins of my own because of my nature, and I am hopeless unless someone who doesn't have the same malady that I do intervenes. But that's what God, the Son, has done in Christ. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. 
Ladies and gentlemen, that's a mouthful, isn't it? And there is a whole lot to saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> you believe in Jesus, then that says you believe in God. He's your God, your creator, your master, your Lord. And you follow him. And if you don't, then you don't believe in Jesus. So one of the reasons there's so little change that goes on with people is because people don't think it's necessary. And part of the reason they don't think it's necessary is because they have this truncated definition of the gospel that says a guy named Jesus, also known as Christ, died. I'm told he did that for me. Cool. I remember praying when I was a kid or a teenager or, and nothing else matters. It matters so much to God. I want to show you guys something and then we'll move on. If you've got your Bible open, take a look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. See, because if you go, if you go on in um, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins, was buried, he was raised, and then the whole rest of the chapter talks about the fact that he was raised means we will be raised and be with him forever. So God has saved us, delivered us because of the death of Jesus, God the Son, on our behalf. But he's going to bring that to fruition. He's going to bring that to completion at the end. Now, how do we know that's going to happen? Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Let's stop for a second. Notice, it leads to godliness. It doesn't just lead to, you know, a piece of paper, a signed Bible that says I'm going to heaven. It leads to a life of godliness. It then says, this is a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. God promised to bring those who come to Jesus into eternity with him before time began. Who did he promise that to? It's before time began. You weren't around. Just turn back a couple of pages to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1. Verse 8, 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to what? Notice, not just the signed Bible I'm going to have. Called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, here's the answer to the question. He made a promise before time began to deliver some people. He made that promise to who? Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus 
before the beginning of time. God the Father made a promise to God the Son that as you go to earth and you die for the sins of these people, they will be delivered from their sins and they will spend eternity with us. God the Father gave a gift of people to God the Son. And God the Son then came, Christ, to execute that plan. Christ died for our sins. So friends, the Bible does not give a truncated gospel. And therefore, we should not live a truncated gospel. The gospel is not about just a beginning. The gospel is about now the godly life and the holy life and the bringing you into eternity with, with God by His power, leading you day by day. Now to page 8. Bottom of page 8. The starting point of the Christian life comes when I first become aware of the deep gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness. When I'm converted, I trust and hope in Jesus, who has done what I could never do. He's bridged the gap between my sinfulness and God's holiness. He's taken God's holy wrath toward my sin upon himself. At the point of conversion, however, I have a very limited view of God's holiness and my sin. The more I grow in my Christian life, the more I grow in my awareness of God's holiness and of my flesh and sinfulness. As I read the Bible, experience the Holy Spirit's conviction, live in community with other people, the extent of God's greatness and the extent of my sin become increasingly clear and vivid. It's not that God's becoming more holy or that I'm becoming more sinful, but my awareness of those is growing. I'm increasingly seeing God as He actually is and myself as I actually am. Notice those two elements then, myself and God. And the gospel, Christ died for our sins. <laughs> the two most important elements in that are God and us. Christ, God did this. How could he do this? Because he's God and, and, and holy and sinless. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ died for our sins. God had to do this because I couldn't. And Christ died for our sins because I'm a sinner. The two most important elements are God's holiness and my sinfulness. And here's the thing. Both of those are still true. God is still holy, and we're still sinful. And as long as those two things are true, you will need the message of the gospel. As long as God is holy, and as long as I am still sinful, then I will need the good news of the message of the gospel. And so you have this chart at the top of page 9. 
that shows you that you come to a point of conversion. And what should happen as I move now along in my walk with God is that my awareness grows. You see that growing now. Gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness. It's a growing awareness. I may actually be less sinful in the sense of becoming more like Christ and growing, but I'm becoming more aware of sin. And so the gap of my awareness continues to grow. Well, you better have something to fill that gap of that growing awareness, because if you don't, you will despair and should despair. But the good news is, you see the cross in between there? It is the cross all all the way that fills the gap between God's holiness and my awareness of of my sinfulness. You see this in the life of the great Apostle Paul. If you were to lay out his epistles, his letters, and you were to do them chronologically, those he wrote first and then those he wrote later, you would find that Paul had this very, himself had this very growing awareness. He would say uh, early on in his ministry that I am, well, 1 Corinthians 15, as a matter of fact, he says, I am the least among the apostles. Well, that's humility. <laughs> I'm the least among the apostles. But, uh, you know, there are only 12 apostles, so being the least among an exclusive group is still pretty cool. I'm the least among the apostles, but then later he says, I'm the least among God's people. And still later, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, I am the chief of sinners. Paul had this growing awareness of God's holiness and his own, his own sinfulness. Middle of page 9. As my understanding of my sin and God's holiness grows, something else grows. My appreciation and love for Jesus. His mediation, his sacrifice, his righteousness, his gracious work on my behalf become increasingly sweet and powerful to me. The cross looms larger and more central in my life as I rejoice in the Savior who died upon it. And let me just say, friends, then this becomes the motivation for more growth and greater service for this God who loved us in this way. This ought to be our motivation. God did that for me. And God continues to work in my life every moment of every day. And God, who does not lie, has promised to take me safely home. (laughs) I want to serve Him. I want to please Him. That should be our motivation. Unfortunately, sanctification, that is growth in holiness, doesn't work quite as neatly as we'd like. Because of the indwelling sin that remains in me, I have an ongoing tendency to minimize the gospel or shrink the cross. This happens when I either minimize God's holiness, thinking of him something less than his word declares him to be, or I elevate my own righteousness, thinking of myself as someone better than I actually am. And when that happens, the cross becomes smaller And Christ's importance in my life is diminished. Look at what happens at the top of page 10. Same diagram, but the the gap in the middle is not filled with the cross. The cross is the same. Jesus' death on our behalf remains the same. And I am convinced that this is what is happening with many, many, many professing Christians. 
Jesus died for my sins on the cross. Thank you. I receive that. And then there's little to no change after that. He does not become greater and sweeter because my awareness of sin, my own sin and his holiness is not increasing. Now we're going to talk in the weeks ahead about why it is that those awarenesses do not increase. But for now, we'll end with page 11 and 12 by looking at some consequences of this then. Here are some consequences of... That way? Okay, yeah. So, everybody remain calm. Go to the door over here, if you would. <laughs> 